Section 30 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 17. The Great Revenge. Part 2. Having told of the last days of the Commune as seen by Count Orsi and the Marquis de Compiègne, there remains one more narrative, the experiences of a man still more intimately connected with the events of that terrible period, though, like a soldier in battle, he seems to have been able to see only what was around him, and could take no general view of what went on in other parts of the field. The writer was an English gentleman who published his narrative immediately after he returned to England in September and October, 1871, in Macmillan's magazine. Quote, the writer, says the editor, is a young gentleman of good family and position. His name, though suppressed for good reasons, is known to us, and we have satisfied ourselves of the trustworthiness of the narrative. He says, quote, I left England very hurriedly for France on March 29, 1871. I had neglected to procure a passport, and had no papers to prove my identity. I travelled from Havre to Paris without trouble, and on the train met two men whom I saw afterwards as members of the Council of the Commune. The first thing that struck me on my arrival in Paris was the extreme quietness of the streets. During the first week of my stay I was absorbed in my own business, and saw nothing. But on Monday, April 10, my own part in the concerns of the Commune began. I was returning home from breakfast about one o'clock in the day, when I met a sergeant and four men in the street, who stopped me, and the sergeant said, "'Pardon, citizen, but what is your battalion?' I answered that, being an Englishman, I did not belong to any battalion. "'And your passport, citizen?' On my replying that I had none, he requested me to go with him to a neighbouring mairie, and I was accordingly escorted thither by the four men. On my arrival I was shown into a cell, comfortable enough, though it might have been cleaner. Having no evidence of my nationality, I felt it was useless to apply to the embassy. All the friends I had in Paris who could have identified me as an Englishman had left the city some days before and as I reflected, it appeared to me that if required to serve the Commune, no other course would be left to me. One thing, however, I resolved, to keep myself as much in the background as possible. In three or four hours I was conducted before the members of the Commune for that arrondissement. They received me civilly, asked my name, age, profession, etc., and then one of them, taking up a paper, proceeded to say that I must be placed in a battalion for active service, as I was under forty years of age. "'Gentlemen,' I replied, "'your political affairs are of no interest to me, and it is my misfortune to be placed in this unpleasant predicament. But I tell you plainly, you may shoot me if you will, but I absolutely refuse to leave Paris to fight the Versaillais, who are no enemies of mine in particular, and I therefore demand to be set at liberty.' Upon this they all laughed, and told me to leave the room. After a little time I was recalled, and told I should be placed in a compagnie sedentaire. I again remonstrated, and demanded to be set at liberty, when they said I was drunk, and ordered me to be locked into my cell, whence I was transferred to my battalion the next morning. I found my captain a remarkably pleasant man, as indeed were all my comrades in my company, and I can never forget the kindness I met with from them. My only regret is my utter ignorance of their fate. I can scarcely hope they all escaped the miserable fate that overtook so many. But I should rejoice to know that some were spared." On entering the captain's office and taking off my hat, I was told to put it on again, as we are all equal here, citizen, and after the captain had said a few words to me, I was regaled with bread, sardines, and wine, the rations for the day. The captain was a young man of six-and-twenty, with a particularly quiet, gentlemanly manner. He was, I believe, a carpet-weaver. He had been a soldier, and had served in Africa with distinction. 
the account of my daily duties as a member of this company from april ten to may twenty three may be here omitted i became orderly to one of the members of the commune and being supplied with a good horse for as an englishman i was supposed to be able to ride i spent much of my time in carrying messages on the morning of tuesday may twenty three our colonel told us of the death of dombrowski who had been shot during the night though particulars were not known i was sorry to hear of his end for he had been disposed to be kind to me and i knew then that the cause of the commune was utterly lost as he was the only able man among them the night before we had seen such a fire as i never saw before streaming up to the sky in two pillars of flame i was told it was the tuileries the versaillais were already within the walls of paris but this we in the centre of the city did not know the news spread during the day however and there was a great panic in the evening everybody began to make preparations for flight the soldiers being anxious to get home and change their uniforms for plain clothes no one knew with any degree of certainty where the enemy really was nor how far he had advanced only one thing was certain that the game was played out and that the sauve qui peut must be the order of the day men women and children were rushing frantically about the streets demanding news and repeating it with a hundred variations the whole scene was lit up by fires which blazed in all directions at last the night gave place to dawn and the scene was one to be remembered for a lifetime the faces of the crowd wore different expressions of horror amazement and abject terror early in the morning of wednesday twenty fourth i with some others was ordered to the barricade of la roquette my companions were very good fellows with one exception a grumpy old wretch who had served in africa and could talk about nothing but the heat of algeria and the chances for plunder he had let slip there finding nothing to do at the barricade i tied my horse and fell asleep upon the pavement i dreamed i was at a great dinner-party in my father's house and could get nothing to eat though dishes were handed to me in due course many times afterwards my sleeping thoughts took that direction i really believe that there were times when i and many others would willingly have been shot if we could have secured one good meal when i awoke about midday in the rue de la roquette i found my companions gone to the mairie of the eleventh arrondissement and i followed them our uniform was not unlike that of the troops of the line in the french army so we were taken by the crowd for deserters and hailed with ah les bons garçons ah les bons patriotes and we shouted back in turn with all our might vive la commune vive la république those words were in my mouth the whole of the next three days the people never saw a horseman without shrieking to him how is all going on at present to which the answer was invariably all goes well vive la commune vive la république though the enemy might at that moment be within five hundred yards indeed the infatuation and credulity displayed by the french not only during the insurrection but the whole war was absurd tell them on good authority that they had lost a battle or been driven back they would answer that you were joking and you might think yourself lucky to escape with a whole skin but say nothing but all goes well we have won and without stopping to inquire they would at once cheer and shout as if for a decisive victory the next duty of our englishmen was to act as mounted orderly to captains who were ordered to visit and report on the state of the barricades also to command all citizens to go into their houses and close the doors and windows there was little enthusiasm at the barricades and everywhere need of reinforcements the army of the commune was melting away the most energetic officer they saw was a stalwart negro lieutenant possibly the man who as de compiegne tells us had scared some versaillais in a cellar on the twenty second of may on the night of thursday may twenty five the column of july was a remarkable sight it had been hung with wreaths of immortelles and those caught fire from an explosive 
elsewhere except for burning buildings there was total darkness there was no gas in paris of course and here our englishman goes on to say that so far as his experience went he saw no petroleuses nor fighting women nor did he believe in their existence by friday may twenty sixth provisions and fodder were exhausted and it was hard for the soldiers of the commune to get anything to eat our englishman in the general disorganization became separated from his comrades and joined himself to a small troop of horsemen wearing the red shirt of garibaldi who swept past him at a furious gallop they were making for the cemetery of pierre lachaise quote, all is lost they cried to get there is our only chance of safety End quote. yet they still shouted to the men and women whom they passed quote, all goes well vive la commune vive la république End quote. by help of an order to visit all the posts which the englishman had in his pocket they obtained admittance into pierre lachaise there were five poles in the party one englishman and one frenchman Quote, and certainly, adds the narrator, they were no credit to their respective nations. It was on their faces that I remarked for the first time that peculiar hunted-down look which was afterwards to be seen on every countenance, and, I presume, upon my own. Our Englishman rode up to a battery in Père Lachaise, planted on the spot made famous by a celebrated passage in Le Père Goriot, in which Balzac describes Rastignac, on the eve of finally selling himself to Satan, as standing and gazing down on Paris to conquer a high place in which is to be his reward. The observer who saw the city from the same spot on the 26th of May, 1871, says, quote, Beneath me lay stretched out like a map the once great and beautiful city, now, alas, given over a prey to fire and sword. I could see smoke rising from many a heap of ruins that but a few short hours before had been a palace or a monument of art. It was impossible, however, to decide what buildings were actually burning, for a thick, misty rain had set in, which prevented my seeing distinctly. In my descent I passed the place where the body of Dombrowski was lying. He had been shot from behind, and the ball had passed through his body. At the gate of the cemetery I found a man waiting for me with news that Belleville was to be our rendezvous. Words cannot paint the spectacle that Belleville presented. It was the last place left, the only refuge remaining and such an assemblage as was collected there it would be difficult to find again there were national guards of every battalion chasseurs fédérés in their wonderful uniform a sort of cross between zouaves linesmen and riflemen enfants perdus in their green coats and feathers very few of these were to be seen as they had no claim to quarter nor did they expect any chasseurs à cheval of the commune in their blue jackets and red trousers leaning idly against the gates of their stables éclaireurs de la commune in blue Garibaldians in red, hussars, cantinières, sailors, civilians, women and children, all mixed up together in the crowded streets, and looking the picture of anxiety. In the afternoon, about four o'clock, we were ordered to mount and escort ces coquins, as the officer called a party of prisoners. They were forty-five gendarmes and six curés, who were to be shot in the courtyard of a neighboring building. We obeyed our orders and accompanied them to their destination. I was told off to keep back the crowd. The men about to die, fifty-one in all, were placed together, and the word was given to fire. Some few, happier than the rest, fell at once, others died but slowly. One gendarme made an effort to escape, but was shot through the stomach and fell, a hideous object, to the ground. One old curé, with long hair, white as snow, had the whole of one side of his head shot away, and still remained standing. After I had seen this, I could bear it no longer, but reckless of consequences, moved away and left the ground, feeling very sick. As I was in the act of leaving, I observed a lad, a mere boy of fourteen or fifteen, 
draw a heavy horseman's pistol from his belt and fire in the direction of the dead and dying. He was immediately applauded by the mob, and embraced by those who stood near as a good patriot. And here let me remark that those who have thought it cruel and inhuman on the part of the conquerors to arrest and detain as prisoners gamins of from twelve to sixteen are quite mistaken. Those who remained at the barricades to the last, and were most obstinate in their defence, were the boys of Paris. They were fierce and uncontrollable, and appeared to be veritably possessed of devils. The difference between the irregular corps and the National Guard was that the latter had, with very few exceptions, been forced to serve, like myself, under compulsion, or by the stern necessity of providing bread for their wives and children, while the irregulars were all volunteers, and had few married men in their ranks." Later in the day two mounted officers in plain clothes, one of them a captain, whom our friend had served as orderly, called him and an artilleryman out of the ranks, and ordered them to accompany them. After a devious course through obscure streets of Paris, the officers gave them some money, and ordered them to go into the next street and see if they could procure plain clothes. Having done so, they returned to the place where their officers had promised to wait for them, but they had disappeared. This was, in truth, a good-natured ruse to save the lives of the two privates, though at the time it was not so understood. Not knowing what to do, they attempted to return to their regiments, but at the first outpost they were challenged by the sentry. They had been away five hours, and the countersign had been changed. They were arrested, and carried to the nearest mairie. They were led upstairs and taken before a member of the commune who was sitting at a table covered with papers, busily writing, surrounded by men of all ranks and uniforms. On hearing their story, he turned round and said, in excellent English, quote, "'What are you doing here, an Englishman and in plain clothes?' The Englishman had grown angry. He answered recklessly, quote, "'Yes, I am English, and I have been compelled to serve your commune. I don't know what your name is or who you are, but I request that you give me a paper to allow me to quit Paris without further molestation.' The member of the commune smiled and answered, quote, "'There is only one thing to be done with you. Here, sergeant.' and the Englishman and the artillerymen were escorted to the guard-room. There everything of value was taken from them. The Englishman lost his watch, his money, and what he valued more, his notebook and papers. He wore a gold ring, the gift of his mother, and as it was difficult to get off, some of the soldiers proposed amputating the finger. Next a species of court-martial was held, which in a few minutes passed sentence that they were to be shot at nine the next morning, for, quote, refusing to serve the commune, end quote. They had been asked no questions, no evidence had been heard, and no defence had been allowed them. Says the Englishman, quote, We were conducted to the black hole. There we found nine others who were to suffer the same fate in the morning. I was too tired to do anything but throw myself on a filthy mattress, and in a few minutes I was sleeping what I thought was my last sleep on earth. I was roused at daybreak by a tremendous hammering of my companions on the door of our cell. I was irritated, and asked angrily why they could not allow those who wished to be quiet to remain so. They answered by telling me to climb up to the window and look into the courtyard. I found it strewn with corpses. The mairie had been evacuated during the night, and it was evident we should not be executed. In vain we tried to force the door of our cell. All we could do was to make as much noise as possible to attract attention. At last a sergeant of the National Guard procured the keys, the heavy door was opened, and we were free. I avoided a distribution of rifles and ammunition, and passed out into the street, hoping that my troubles were over. Alas, they were only just begun, for the first sight that met my eyes as I stepped into the street was a soldier of the government, calling on all those in sight to surrender and to lay down their arms. I gave myself up as a prisoner of war. It was Whit Sunday, May 28. 
Happily my name was written down as one of those taken without arms. I was placed in a party of prisoners, and we were marched to the Butte de Chaumont, passing in our way many a barricade, or rather the remains of them. Here the body of a man shot through the head was lying stiff and cold upon the pavement. There was a pool of coagulated blood. There were a corpse of a gentleman in plain clothes, apparently sleeping, with his head buried in his arms, but a small red stream issuing from his body told that he slept the sleep of death. Some, as we marched on, kept silence, some congratulated themselves that all was over, while some predicted our immediate execution. All had the same hunted-down, wearied look upon their faces that I have before alluded to. At last we were halted and given over to the charge of a regiment of the line. The first order given was, fling down your hats. Luckily I had a little silk cap, which I contrived to slip into my pocket, and which was afterwards of great comfort to me. We stood bareheaded in the blazing sun some time, till our attention was called to a sound of shooting, and a whisper went round, "'We are all to be shot.' The agonized look on the faces of some I can never forget. But these were men of the better sort, and few in number. The greater part looked sullen and stolid, shrugged their shoulders, and said, "'It won't take long. A shot, and all is over.' A boy about four files behind me was a pitiable object. His cries and his frantic endeavours to attract notice to a document of some sort he held in his hand were silenced at last by a kick from an officer and a tétois crapaud. Very different was it with a poor child of nine who stood next to me. He never cried nor uttered a word of complaint, but stood quietly by my side for some time, looking furtively into my face. At last he ventured to slip his little hand into mine, and from that time till the close of that terrible day we marched hand in hand. Meantime the executions went on. I counted up to twenty, and afterwards I believe some six or seven more took place. Those put to death were nearly all officers of the National Guard. One who was standing near me, a paymaster, had his little bag containing the pay of his men, which he had received the day before, but had not been able to distribute among them. He now gave it away to those standing round him, I among them getting a few francs, saying, I shall be shot, but this money may be of use to you, my children, in your sad captivity. He was led out and shot a few minutes afterwards. They all, without exception, met their fate bravely and like men. There was no shrinking from death or entreaties to be spared among those I saw killed. After an hour we resumed our march, the mob saluting us with the choicest selection of curses and abusive epithets I ever heard. We passed down the Rue Royale, the bystanders calling on us to look upon the ruin we had caused, through the Champs-Élysées to the Arch of Triumph, marching bareheaded under a burning sun. At length, in the Avenue de l'Impératrice, an order to halt was given. There, weary and footsore, many dropped down on the ground, waiting for death, which we were now convinced was near at hand. For myself, I felt utterly numbed and contented to die, and I think I should have received with equal indifference the news of my release. I remember plotting in my mind how I could possibly get news of my fate conveyed to my parents in England could I ask one of the soldiers to convey a message for me, and would he understand what to do? With such thoughts, and mechanically repeating the Lord's Prayer to myself at intervals, I whiled away more than an hour, until an order, Get up, all of you, broke the thread of my meditations. Presently, General the Marquis de Galifet, he who had served the Emperor in Mexico, passed slowly down the line, attended by several officers. He stopped here and there, selecting several of our number, chiefly the old or the wounded, and ordered them to step out of the ranks. His commands were usually couched in abusive language. A young man near me called out, "'I am an American. Here is my passport. I am innocent.' "'Silence!' 
We have foreigners and riffraff more than enough. We have got to get rid of them, was the general's reply. All chance was over now, we thought. We should be shot in a few minutes. Our idea was that those who had been placed aside were to be spared, and those about me said, It is just. They would not shoot the aged and the wounded. Alas, we were soon to be undeceived. Again we started, and were ordered to march arm in arm to the Bois de Boulogne. There, those picked out of our ranks by General de Gallifet, over eighty in number, were all shot before our eyes. Yet so great was our thirst, that many, while the shooting was going on, were struggling for water, of which there was only a scant supply. I was not fortunate enough to get any. The execution being over, we proceeded, now knowing that our destination was Versailles. Oh, the misery and wretchedness of that weary march! The sun poured fiercely down on our uncovered heads, our throats were parched with thirst, our blistered feet and tired legs could hardly support our aching bodies. Now and again a man utterly worn out would drop by the wayside. One of our guard would then dismount, and try by kicks and blows to make him resume his place in the line. In all cases those measures proved unavailing, and a shot in the rear told us that one of our number had ceased to exist. The executioner would then fall into his place, laughing and chatting gaily with his comrades. Towards eight o'clock in the evening we entered Versailles. If the curses we had endured in Paris were frightful and numerous, here they were multiplied tenfold. We toiled up the hill leading to Satory. There stand the mitrailleuses ready for us, said one of my companions. Then, indeed, for the first time I felt afraid, and wished I had been among those who had been executed in the daytime, rather than be horribly wounded and linger in my misery, for no sure aim is taken by a mitrailleuse. The order came to halt, and I waited for the whirring sound, but thank God I waited in vain. We set ourselves in motion once more, and soon were in an immense courtyard surrounded by walls, having on one side large sheds in which we were to pass the night. With what eagerness did we throw ourselves on our faces in the mud, and lap up the filthy water in the pools! There was another Englishman, as well as several Americans, among our number, also some Dutch, Belgians, and Italians. The Englishman had arrived in Paris from Brest on May 14 to better himself, and had been immediately arrested and put in prison by the Commune. Being released on the 21st of May, he was captured the next day by the Versaillais. I remained all the time with him till my release. On Wednesday, May 31, we were dispatched to Versailles to be examined at the Orangerie. The Orangerie is about seven hundred feet long and forty broad, including two wings at either end. It is flagged with stone, on which the dust accumulates in great quantities. According to my experience, it is bitterly cold at night, and very hot in the daytime. Within its walls, instead of fragrant orange-trees, were four to five thousand human beings, now herded together in a condition too miserable to imagine, a prey to vermin, disease, and starvation. The general appearance of the crowd of captives was, I must confess, far from prepossessing. They were very dirty, very dusty, and worn out, as I myself was, probably, and no wonder. The floor was several inches thick in dust, no straw was attainable, and washing was impossible. I gained some comparative comfort by gathering up dust in a handkerchief and making a cushion of it. Thursday, June 1, dragged on as miserably as its predecessor, the only event being the visit of a deputy, which gave rise to great anticipations, as he said, in my hearing, that our condition was disgraceful, and that straw and a small portion of soup ought to be allowed us. The terrible scenes and sufferings we had gone through had deprived many of our number of their reason. Some of the madmen were dangerous, and made attempts to take the lives of their companions. Others did nothing but shout and scream day and night. 
the second night we passed in the orangerie the englishman and i thought we had secured a place where we might lie down and sleep in the side gallery but at midnight we were attacked by one of the most dangerous of the madmen it was useless to hope to find any other place to lie down in and we had no more rest that night for several maniacs persisted in following us wherever we went and would allow us no repose I counted that night forty-four men bereft of reason, wandering about and attacking others, as they had done ourselves. The next day we found ourselves at last in the ranks of those who were to leave the Orangerie. Our names were inscribed at eleven o'clock, and we stood in rank till seven in the evening, afraid to lose our places if we stirred. What our destination might be was to us unknown, but there was not a man who was not glad to quit the place where we had suffered such misery." Their destination proved to be Brest, which they reached at midnight of the next day, after travelling in cattle-cars for about thirty hours. They were transferred at once to a hulk lying in the harbour. Clean shirts and water to wash with were given them, which seemed positive luxuries. Their treatment was not bad, they had hammocks to sleep in, and permission to smoke on deck every other day. But the sufferings they had gone through, and the terribly foul air of the orangerie, had so broken them down that most of them were stricken by a kind of jail-fever. Many, without warning, would drop down as if in a fit, and be carried to a hospital-ship moored near them, to be seen no more. Our Englishman remained three weeks on board this hulk, and then escaped. But by what means he did not, in October 1871, venture to say. He concludes his narrative with these words, quote, When I think of those who were with me who still remain in the same condition, and apparently with no chance of release, my heart grows sick within me and I can only be thankful to Almighty God for my miraculous and providential escape. In conclusion, let me say, as one who lived and suffered among them, that so far from speaking hardly of the miserable creatures who have been led astray, one ought rather to pity them. The greater part of those who served the Commune, for all in Paris, with but few exceptions, did serve, were pressed men, like myself, but those who had wives and children to support, and were without work, nay, even without means of obtaining a crust of bread, for the siege had exhausted all their little savings, were forced by necessity to enroll themselves in the National Guard for the sake of their daily pay. In the regular army of the Commune, if I may so style the National Guard, there were but few volunteers, and these were in general orderly and respectable men. But the irregular regiments, such as the Enfants Perdus, Chasseurs Fédérés, Défenseurs de la Colonne de Juillet, etc., were nothing but troops of blackguards and ruffians, who made their uniforms an excuse for robbery and pillage, such men deserved the vengeance which overtook the majority of them. End, quote. End of section thirty. End of chapter seventeen.